made up my mind to make a new start. Going to California with an aching in my heart. Someone told me there's a girl out there with love in her eyes and flowers in her hair. We're back. And we have returned from our long venture from San Diego Comic-Con. We are back in Atlanta, and we're back with you here at the Geek Rex Podcast. And I'm joined by Hannah. Hello. Cal. Hi. And uh, Harper. <laughs> Cal hey. with a couple of movies. There's Harper. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, so, yeah, we're, this is going to be a two-part episode because there's a couple different things we're talking about. But first things first, since the four of us are here and online, and three of us actually ventured out to San Diego for Nerd Prom, as some people call it, the biggest comics convention maybe in the world, definitely in the country. We went to San Diego Comic-Con and had a pretty fun blast of a time. Matter of fact, Harper, Hannah, and I all roomed together along with our uh, our friend Josh Trujillo, who some of you might remember uh, from the Mad Men episode about a year ago, a uh, comics creator that uh, has a pretty wonderful comic called Love Machines. Uh, we all roomed together, and we all sort of covered a bunch of different things. And in the coming week... Uh, or two, uh, you'll get a chance to hear some of the interviews that we sort of partook in. Uh, that includes some interviews with people like Haley Atwell and Clark Gregg and um, Seth Myers and uh, a bunch of uh, really exciting uh, names. Did have anybody else exciting I missed in that list there, Hannah? Um I'm sure we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah, right, <laughs> totally. Anyway, there's a whole bunch, so be on the lookout for those interviews. So, yeah, uh, you know, Hannah, this is this was our fourth comic con mm-hmm. uh our second time going as members of the press uh harper this was your first yep so uh and cal you you got to play at home <laughs> but <laughs> you know we'll uh we'll talk a little bit about some of the highlights here and sort of some of our experiences but hannah i mean for your fourth one how did it live up to the uh, expectations set by previous shows did you have a good time yeah, um, I think this year was maybe calmer for me because last year was the first year we went as press, and I don't think I really understood how to pace myself and how many assignments to take and how much time to allot for writing up those assignments and completing them afterwards, and also the stuff I wanted to do as a fan in general. I just feel like I was completely unprepared last year, so... This year, I felt like I had just the right amount of stuff going on. I was maybe a little overwhelmed on Saturday, but overall, it felt a lot calmer to me. And it also really helped that we stayed in the hotel where all the press stuff happened because yeah. <laughs> there was a lot less schlepping. So for me, it was a good calmer con. Yeah, we, we stayed at the uh, San Diego Bayfront this year. Which the Hilton is, Bayfront. Oh, yeah. Hilton Bayfront. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was like right across the road from the convention center so literally it was like the calmest walk back to our hotel where most people were standing in these gigantic lines trying to cross like a a tram railroad section this was actually kind of a peaceful little uh relaxing thing which was yeah i mean i forgot how horrible it is to cross that intersection till sunday when we did it to get lunch and it took like 20 minutes to cross one stupid street that was the longest line we waited in the whole time forever (laughs) so it was definitely a good move staying on that side of the street yeah harper how about your first one man what did you think 
I had a really, really good time. Um, I actually was was pretty nervous going out just because I I'd heard about y'all's experience and how kind of crazy it was and everything. And, you know, everybody just tells you how, how big and how, how nuts the whole thing is. And it absolutely is. Um, it's a little overwhelming. But no, I mean, I was lucky enough to get to cover a lot of the stuff that I probably would have gone to as a fan anyways. I covered a lot of DC stuff and uh, all the Archie stuff, which ended up being pretty exciting for me. So yeah, I mean, between that and doing a lot of interviews and just kind of spending my spare time just exploring around and, and checking out all the crazy stuff, I had a really good time. It was it was fun. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Harper probably was doing the thing we were doing last year, which was like every possible assignment under the sun. <laughs> you had a lot on Harper. Were you exhausted? <laughs> and you know, it really wasn't that bad. Um, I just ended up kind of using my time in between stuff to to transcribe and you know, just back at the hotel room taking care of that stuff. But I got really into the groove of doing the interviews and stuff to the point where it was it was just kind of fun. But it was a lot. Um, it ended up being a lot uh, on the back end, the actual setting articles up and, and putting everything together. That that took a lot longer than I expected. But the actual work was, was not too bad. Nice. You know, I'll never forget last year how <laughs> my favorite memory is while I'm, I'm like running from like basically six blocks away from the convention center to catch an interview with Gene Yang. <laughs> and I'm having to meet him over at the first second booth. And I'm like running from wherever we were. I don't know if we were at lunch or, or what we were doing. We were, we were at some engagement and I'm running to make this meeting and I'm going, when I finally meet up with Gene, I'm sweating bullets the entire <laughs> interview. I'm already nervous as it is, you know, cause it's going to be a longer one, but I've just got sweat pouring down my face. And luckily this year I did not have one moment with sweat pouring down my face in front of an interview subject, which is definitely not the way I wanted to uh, make an impression on Haley Atwell, I can tell you right now, or Grant Gustin. So, yeah, that was probably my my favorite moment, the fact that I held it together and didn't look like an absolute piece of shit most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, so, Cal, let me ask you, as the guy who was at home, uh, you know, and Shane, who was so ably updating uh, all the news the stories on geekrex.com, which was just the greatest thing ever, were there any big stories that caught you by surprise? Anything that, uh, you know, caught you by interest in terms of like big news from the comics side of things or the entertainment side? Well, I, I had kind of a weird time this year. I mean, normally I try to follow things pretty closely as they're going down. But through most of SDCC, I, I actually had such bad strep that looking at a computer screen hurt. Mm. And so I was catching things like a couple days after everyone else knew them. So I was getting like this weird kind of deflated sense of SDCC. Because like at first everyone would be very excited and there'd all be, be all these like, oh, holy shit, like Supergirl might cross over to this. And then like two days later, everyone would be like, I don't ca- I don't care. Just I don't care. So I was, I was getting a weird SDCC experience, but um, I mean, there was some big news. I think my two favorite things though, are things that probably no one else cared about. Like I was unconscionably excited that squirrel girl is coming back (laughs) with the same creative team. That was like my biggest thing from SDCC this year was like, holy shit, squirrel girl isn't canceled and no one else cares. I'm pretty sure I got that news while Hannah and I were in a children's hospital panel. Um, <laughs> so I thought I thought to myself when I saw that show up on Twitter because uh, I you know I, I didn't attend any of the Marvel panels this year. That was you know somebody else's assignment. I just thought to myself, well, I know Cal's going to be happy about that. <laughs> I, I legitimately had five or six people 
like either tweet me or Facebook me about that. So I guess people know know who I am. Uh, <laughs> they know where your allegiances lie, Cal. With regards to Swirl Girl, people know people know me. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, honestly, the the weirdly the thing that ended up making me the most excited was probably um, the uh, Suicide Squad trailer. Weirdly, there were a lot of trailers that hit, and I mean. Not news-wise, there were a lot of great interviews, some of which many of you listeners here will be getting to experience soon. But uh, news-wise, yeah, that, the Suicide Squad trailer had me really excited, weirdly. Uh, <laughs> I have a feeling I'm mostly alone on that one, too. No, I'm kind of with you, actually. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. I, the first time I watched it, I, I didn't get obviously I didn't get to see it there because I'm not insane. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like, this is... You know, it's a little it's a little different than what you know, kind of DC movies we've seen before. And then the, I watched it a second or third time, and I, I started to really get into it. I'm, that's actually one I'm fairly excited about at this point. Yeah, you know, we we didn't see them till we were at our vacation house after the con because I I didn't my interest in watching a, a trailer that was like bootlegged was just yeah. like zero, honestly. And, and I know they did the, the official release of the Batman v Superman trailer like right after the it, almost an hour after it hit Hall H, which is actually like a preferred makes scenario. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like millions of viewers versus thousands of viewers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't make it. It seems silly to me to have like some sort of con only exclusive um, when the buzz needs to build elsewhere, especially for that film. But we watched it at the vacation home, and Hannah, you seemed pretty excited by that Batman one, didn't you? Yeah, I was more excited by that one than that. Well, the Suicide Squad one we watched was a bootleg, so it didn't look very good. Well, we eventually watched the real one, though, like a couple of days later. Um, yeah, I don't know if I did. No, you did. I, showed oh. it. I, we I guess I did. <laughs> we were in bed, so obviously it made no impression on you is what you're saying. I don't remember that. Yeah, but the Batman and Superman one I was excited about. Yeah, I don't know. I'm excited about that movie. I'm excited for Batfleck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am too. Actually, uh, that trailer I thought was actually, you know, better than uh, the last one, of course. So that anything was an improvement, generally speaking. So yeah, I, I was into that. I, I can tell you, I was not into the Deadpool trailer at all. I just sorry if somebody feels differently. I, I just thought it was so unfunny. And, I didn't watch that one. I haven't seen it yet. That one's only bootlegged, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the one bootleg I watched, um, just because I had to see what everyone was raving about, and what I saw didn't live up to that hype. And I, I, I attempted to watch an X Men Apocalypse trailer, but it was so badly recorded. I just did the hell with it. I'm yeah, not doing same that. here. So I'll just wait till the, the real thing hits. But yeah, it was kind of funny. It seemed like this was sort of the DC show, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of weird. Yeah, I feel like this year, I maybe it was just me, but I felt like a lot of the big movie stuff was ebbing away, kind of. And it was much more about like toys and exclusives than I ever remember it being. I mean, it's always about that a little bit, but like that damn Funko line Every day, I think everyone asked us to get us some, asked us to get them something from that Funko thing, and it was like it was crazy. I think Heidi in her article compared it to Hall H, like Funko is the new Hall H, oh, yeah. and that was true. Like people were camping out and shit for that. It was yeah. nuts. the The toy stuff was just bananas this year. I, I saw a lot of anger on Twitter about that. Actually, uh, 
people were taking pictures of um, there were uh, two guys who had their pictures taken probably you know a few dozen times, and they were getting so much hate on Twitter because they walked out of that Funko line on the first day with like seven bags stuffed hmm. bursting with uh, with those exclusive figures. No one else can get them, and uh, so I, I actually yeah I saw even even divorced from it completely. I saw a lot of anger about that. Yeah, it was it was a weird system because they had rules about when you could line up and how. So there were like lines for the lines, and it's just like it's all happening in that giant floor where there's so much going on anyway. But I, I really felt like a couple years ago. I mean, I was aware of that stuff peripherally, but I feel like it was the front and center game this year was getting these random toys and collectibles. Like it was all about that. Well, it's it's funny to me with the con floor, the way it's set up. You know, when you go to grocery stores, the the going rule is just sort of hang around the outside. The healthy stuffs, yeah, in the outer aisles. Stay on the outer aisles and then, like, don't ever go in the center. And that's kind of the case with – or that used to be the case with San Diego Comic Con. Like, you could maneuver on the periphery Mm -hmm. somewhat – around all the big displays. Cause the way it's set up, it used to be set up was on the far left side was artist alley uh, right next to all of that beyond the art displays was all the big movie studio stuff, which was like, and the TV stuff. And it's like, stay the hell away from there in the center. Yeah. And then after that, it's like comics, it's like DC Marvel. And then all your smaller publishers image drawn in quarterly, whomever. And then on the far end, it was video games this year, uh, along with like your t-shirt vendors and your guys that were selling like, you know, half off trades and uh, dollar comics and all this. But this year it got a little screwier because Funko Pop took over the side on the left yeah. end. Mm-hmm. And there they were, were on the outer edge. And there were less artists this year, yeah. I thought. So I thought that was a real shame. And it may have been because of the cost to even participate in the con for some of these artists because you have to buy a table, mm-hmm. um, which is just sort of standard practice for a con. But I'm sure it was incredibly expensive. So, yeah, even the far left side was super crowded. Anyway, I spent all my time around drawing quarterly and fan graphics, and it's like a no man's land. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't go for any of the weird exclusive toys or anything like that because it just felt so pointless. But I feel like that's becoming more and more what that show is about. Yeah, I mean, I, I walked up to the Funko Pop booth like the first day on preview night, and they're like, "Nope, we're full." I was like, "Never mind, I'm turning around." <laughs> yeah, instantly, <laughs> yeah. and I never went back. <laughs> That's just really the way it sort of sh- shook out for me. Um, but uh, Harper, I mean, of all the things that you saw at the con, let me just cut to the quick here. Uh, what was your favorite thing that you did or favorite piece of news? Whatever. Just give me your highlight. There are a couple pieces of news that came out that were really exciting to me. Um, and it was weir- weird to think I was expecting to go to Comic-Con and come back and be like totally sick of comics and not want to talk or think about them for a while. But it actually kind of rejuvenated me a little bit uh, just because I kind of got to throw myself back into it a little bit. So, uh, I mean, for me, probably some of the biggest stuff, the Vertigo, uh, 12 new titles, that was huge and pretty exciting with you know stuff like Mike Allred doing a book with them and... Um, most excitingly, Darwin Cook and uh, Gilbert Hernandez, especially doing um, what's the name of that one? Uh, uh, Twilight uh, Children. Twilight Children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, at least I'd say at least half of those twelve Vertigo books look very interesting to me, and I'll, I'll be checking out most of them. So that's that's pretty exciting. 
I, I got to tell you, if I if I had not known that that was coming about six hours before it was announced, yeah. I'm pretty sure I would have screamed in that panel. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it would have been like, y'all ever seen that movie Rocket Man, where that dude like screams when they they send him this space? I'm pretty sure that would have been me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty exciting. Yeah, and so, same here. I mean, I, I, obviously we we had a little bit of a tip, but yeah, no, that was really exciting. And I mean, just to walk into the room and see the talent up on that stage was pretty thrilling. Because we we knew there was something coming, but we didn't know necessarily everybody that was going to be involved. I had no idea Mike Allred was going to be there, for example. And he's like a holy man for me in, in comics realm. So that was pretty exciting. You met him too. I did. Yeah, I finally got to meet him. Um, my all-time favorite artist. So that was pretty cool. That that was maybe the biggest thing. And then um, just a lot of fun Archie stuff that probably nobody gives a shit about <laughs> besides me. But uh, I think a lot more people care about Archie now. Yeah, I hope so, man. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff about Archie number one, getting to talk to Mark Wade about that and um, hearing about the other series. I'm, I'm really excited about uh, Jughead with written by Chip Zdarsky and drawn by Eric, uh, Erica Henderson. That looks really fun. And yeah, I mean, just getting to kind of learn a little bit more about that stuff, meet some of my, uh, my favorite creators on on that side of things. So, yeah, I mean, those are probably a couple of my highlights for me. Hannah, how about you? I think my favorite panel was probably the Hannibal panel, just because it it's weird. Like, Brian Fuller, I feel like he's so forthcoming in those things. Like, he's very, okay, this is exactly what's going on. He He likes to share with his audience and his fans. So that was really cool, and especially since everyone had this feeling of, like, this probably will be the last Hannibal panel. It was really neat to watch. And then we did the press room after, and um, that was a really good time. My favorite press room experience was actually for a Hulu show called The Awesomes that I had never heard of until I got the press room invitation for it. But it's basically a bunch of the talents behind Saturday Night Live do an animated superhero show on Hulu. And that press room was very small and very intimate. So it was like, you know, four talents with four or five reporters and two rounds of that. And that's it. Like there were 10 reporters or something. So it was really cool and really intimate. And they were just really, really, really nice. Like Seth Meyers, Ike Barinholtz, Taryn Killam. They're all like, shake your hand, ask you your name. Just really, really kind people who seemed way more interested than sometimes typical actors or actresses do when they're talking about their projects. So (laughs) that was a really fun experience. Yeah, you know, about that Hannibal panel first, mm-hmm. one of the things that kind of interested me is Ballroom 20 is like the second biggest ballroom space right behind Hall H. And when we walked in, we thought we'd go a little early so we weren't like shut out of the Hannibal uh, room altogether. We thought it would be full. Yeah, and when we got in there, they were doing a panel for Outlander, um, which is a star show that I don't watch. Um, though, Cal, maybe is that a show you, you watch at all? I've seen the first episode of and plan to watch, but haven't seen the rest. It was packed. I mean, packed. Although, to be fair, the first 25 to 30% of the rows were filled with those girls with the flower crowns waiting for Hannibal. Right, right. <laughs> I'm hardcore Hannibal. Fans. Yes, yeah. But, but once that Outlander panel ended, all those people behind the flower hat girls or flower crown girls got up and walked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it. I guess it's indicative of the show in general. Like, we thought lots of people liked it, and so we went really <laughs> early, and guess what? Like, it was only two-thirds full, probably. Maybe half. <laughs> Maybe half, yeah. I mean, we didn't need to get there early at all, and we definitely got there an hour early. And, again, indicative 
executive of the show, most people who went to it got there an hour early and sat through mm. Outlander to get to it. It's just a very small but dedicated group of fans. But yeah, that was kind of sad. It was a good panel. It was fun. But yeah, yeah, it just sort of brought everything home to me about about Hannibal's actual popularity. Um, Although if we're going to talk about empty panels, the funniest one for us was uh, that Grant Morrison panel. We went to one at like 11 o'clock on a Friday in um, the Indigo Ballroom, which is like the third biggest ballroom, I think. Yeah. And what was it for again, the title of it? It was for his new uh, comic for Graphic India, 18 Days, and the Humble Bundle comic he's doing now called Avatar X. It was a good panel, but oh my gosh, they really overshot that one. Like, yeah, it was just rows of empty chairs behind us. We walked in a minute before it started, and we were right at the front. Like, it was just dead. It was sad, it, which kind of highlights to me that people only seem to maybe care about Grant Morrison stuff when he's writing, like, Batman or something. You know, in general, I feel like if you like comics, Comic-Con's actually a really great place to be because you can get to most of the comic-related panels without waiting a super long time. That is true. I didn't wait in a single line all weekend. Yeah, I mean, the lines are just for the toys, for the movies, like for the really, really big stuff with really famous people. Other than that, I feel like any comics-related panel I wanted to go to, getting there five minutes ahead of time was fine, and it was never too crazy. Yeah, that's always been my experience, though. I mean, I've I've gone to, like, these one-on-one panels with, like, creators that I think are quite popular, and I've never had an issue getting in. Granted, I've never tried to go to, like, a Kelly Sue DeConnick panel or a Matt Fraction panel there, but... I think you'd be fine, though. I mean, Stan um, Lee was in some small room. Yeah. Like, it's just not... uh, People aren't lining up in droves for that there. And that's the kind of thing that, like, a Dragon Con, you'd be waiting an hour or two. Oh, hours, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It would... It would be no joke. Um, for my highlights, I'll say I went to every Grant Morrison panel, and some were better than others. I thought the Graphic India panel was enjoyable. The Heavy Metal panel was kind of bullshit, mainly because it's clear they don't know what the hell he's doing for Heavy Metal yet, <laughs> other than he's the editor-in-chief in name. Whatever that means, we'll see. But they, they basically came up and said, this is what I plan to do, and what he plans to do is make Heavy Metal cooler. Okay, That was pretty much the end of that panel. A little too early, I guess, for that (laughs) one. And then the Multiversity panel, which um, you can actually see on our site now, which Harper did such a nice job putting together the audio and the slideshow for that. Can we just say props to Harper? We got home and we just emailed Harper every audio file (laughs) on all of our phones and said, here you go, do something with this (laughs) for Harper. Oh, my God. I looked at my phone. It was like 50 emails. Yeah. I was like, like... Kyle, what should I send him? He's like, send him everything. I was like, I have a lot of audio. Just send him everything. I was like, okay. (laughs) Oh, whatever we don't use will go in the Geek Rex vaults. It'll it'll be useful one day. Yeah. That that, that interview with the... God, I don't know, random dude from Lucifer is really going to, you know. Yeah, and they, they definitely all require cleanup because the way those are done, those press rooms, they're so, like, hurried. And everyone who's walking up to your table assumes you know who they are. If they're a producer, a director, whatever, someone behind the scenes, you've never seen their face before, they just think you know. And so they sit down and they're like, shoot. And so you don't want to be like, what's your name? Who are you? So, but so a lot of it is like, it's me to the mic, like director mm-hmm. Sam, or like, like me saying like part of one name that I think I heard or mispronounced it's like or whatever. David. Yeah. <laughs> like that's all I got from the people around me. Or like, I heard someone call him David. So I'm like, David. And then it's 
just a cluster. That, um, that there, there was actually a point where um, Michelle Fazekas and Tara Butters, who are the showrunners for Agent Carter, uh, came up to the table. And I think uh, Chris... I don't know. I said, I, I said his name last night in our recordings. Now I can't remember. Like the, the third guy that's like the executive producer for Agent Carter. Apologies if you're listening, which I'm sure you're not. They all came up to the table, and this one guy who I see, you know, I see it in quite a few press press circles, <coughs> he was like, "Who are these people?" Oh my god! <laughs> like I had to whisper to him, "They're the Agent Carter showrunners, man." Well, and you know, some of the some of the press rooms, the publicity people are really good, and they make these printouts with everyone's faces and names, and they hand it to you beforehand, and so you're in really good shape. But I would say 95% of them don't say anything, no one tells you who they are, no one tells you what they're doing, and so you're just asking really generic questions to kind of feel it out, like, so how's it been working on the show or, you know, like something. And then they say something about, well, when I was writing or when, and then you're like, okay, okay, I'm getting who this is now. Like it's one of these three people on this yeah. list. Yeah. It's, it's a weird experience. I mean, it's fun. Uh, I had a great time in the flash press room, uh, especially talking with like Grant Gustin. Uh, and it's surprisingly Tom Cavanaugh, maybe not surprisingly. Not surprisingly. He's hilarious like, actually. But the highlight for me was that Hannah got a picture of Soul Man himself, C. Thomas Howell. It's so weird that that's your highlight. That is totally it was awesome. not my highlight. <laughs> I was so excited about that because for Fourth of July we watched Soul Man, and I thought Hannah is going to be in a room with this guy. He sat down at the table, and I almost just started laughing just with no context <laughs> because he's Soul Man and he's right there, and I got my phone out and snapped a picture and. <laughs> sent it to Kyle and I was like there you go the reason she interviewed C. Thomas Howells because he's actually a cast member in this Justice League Gods and Monsters which just looks like shit by the way it's this terrible looking Bruce Tim cartoon I'm willing to watch it I mean it's it's Bruce Tim right sure. so I'm willing to give it a shot uh-huh. but yeah I don't know <laughs> I, my trust lately with them and their animated stuff is low yeah so, I, I heard the premiere went over like a fucking Led Zeppelin really? too. yeah was, the, the, the reviews I I heard were well it's really dark get you know if, if you're okay with dark maybe you'll be into it but cool. okay with dark i want to hear dexter's batman so i'm excited about that yeah yeah but i guess they circle back to my one my major point is it, this and i guess it makes sense because they've moved out to california but this was like the dc show oh yeah um like dc television dc movies DC Comics making tons of announcements because they clearly held their solicitations till like the weekend of the show, Mm -hmm. which was a good move on their part. So they had like any kind of announcements at all. But I was just kind of like, as a DC fan, you know, a fanboy of that company for many, many years, and pretty much being my entree to comics, that was an exciting moment for me because I thought, well, they're catering to my interests. That's cool. So I, I just one of these things that struck me where last Marvel, who I guess is holding out for New York Comic Con, which makes sense because they're in New York, they just kind of didn't have much of a presence at all. Yeah, but again, it's what you make of it. There's so much going on there. That's the stuff that gets the attention in the headlines. But like, you could be a fan of indie comics and not go to a single DC related panel and still fill up all of your days i think like there was just that much happening yeah i went to a great panel uh with michael deforge jillian tamaki and uh, benjamin mara called uh, 21st century creators and they did a live reading of their comics 
which I thought was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, especially cool. when Ben Barr starts doing reading from Terror Assaulter, which I got to tell you is the wildest comic I've read in a long time. That was fun. Hannah and I went to a great panel for God is Disappointed in You. Yeah, that was just a fun little surprise. And then there were the opposite panels, like the one that we went to. Oh. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> what was that again? Oh, God. All right. So, Cal <laughs> Harper, I drug Hannah to a panel that uh, was a, a one-on-one, some some guy, I don't know who the moderator was, but he was interviewing Paul Levitz. <laughs> and it was not about running DC. No, it was about his time writing The Legion of Superheroes. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> I... I think Paul Levitz is a wonderful person. He was a great leader for DC, a hell of a businessman. He's boring as shit. I mean, it was one of the worst panels I've ever seen. The driest (laughs) panel. I mean, I don't even know anything about this comic, so I'm just like, it was all completely (laughs) over my head. And like, I was telling Kyle, some of these people, like Grant Morrison, you can just go watch him talk, not know anything he's talking about, and still have a great time because he's just... He's an entertainer, and he's philosophical, and he's just a really good speaker. But that was not the case with this panel. It was painful, painful. Yeah, that was definitely like a low point. We left about 30 minutes in. We couldn't we couldn't take it anymore. And it was one of those awkward exits where it's like, it's a small room, and you stand up in front of everyone, you start to leave, and then we went to the closest door, which wasn't an exit, so we had to cross across <laughs> the whole room to get to the other door, which wasn't an exit. It's just, oh, man. Now, Paul Levitz will remember you both for that forever. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't expect Paul Levitz is going to... Uh, Care. I mean, he's yeah. got a lot going on, right? He's well, a successful well, guy. Well, he's retired. Well, he had a lot going on, and now he's retired. Right. And that's he's, how on it should pod- be. he's on a podcast right now talking about these two assholes. Got up right in the middle of a compelling story and interrupted his flow. Yeah, I mean, I was. I, the, mo- the breaking point for me was when the guy asked, well... Well, when you created Wildfire, what were you thinking of? I was like, oh, my God, I got to get the fuck out of here. I can't <laughs> take this. <laughs> I can't revel in that I kind of I don't know nostalgia. what you thought it would be. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know how you thought it would be different than that. I but. don't know. I knew it was going to be bad, but I just <laughs> – it was the Legion, and I couldn't say no. And I'd never seen Paul Levin speak in person before. And now I never will again, but uh, – <laughs> It was it was what it was. Um, so yeah, it was what it was. Yeah, that's pretty much my review of San Diego Comic Con for my folks. Uh, you have any other last thoughts about it? Uh, was I'm glad you had a good time. Would you go again, Harper? Would you go again? I think I would. Um, although that's saying it at on this end of it. If uh, if you asked me like a few months before when we were going through the hotel lottery and the ticket lottery, oh, I would say hell no. <laughs> so it's hard to say. I, I would like to go back, but I don't know if I want to go through that again, but yeah, I mean, at least the ticket stuff is not a problem. Right. The thing. Like, you know, it's okay. And if you went next year, you wouldn't even have to get, you know, like you're already approved. Yeah, so totally, but yeah, the hotel was just, that was scary. <laughs> but no, I mean, like you said, it's a good con for comics people. I was really impressed with how much kind of indie comic stuff. I mean, just to name a few as you know, on the side from the stuff I covered for DC and Archie, I got to go to a 
panel with the Tamakis uh, kind of interviewing each other. And I saw uh, Gene Luen Yang interviewing uh, Scott McCloud. And I saw a pop music and comics panel with um, Mixed Master Mike on it, for God's sakes. <laughs> um, so really, really cool stuff that I would never have guessed would have come out of Comic-Con just because all you ever hear about it is the, the big stuff, the Hall H stuff. So I, I thought it was really interesting and, and kind of indifferent than what I expected from that front. And, and I mean, the other thing, too, is just this is not specific to Comic-Con, but uh, just in my experience that weekend, man, comics people are good people. Uh, I didn't I didn't talk to a single person, do an interview with anybody who I walked away with like a bad taste in my mouth or anything. Everybody was super cool. I got maybe uh, my favorite compliment I've ever gotten, which was uh, I was like, uh, yeah, it was great talking to you guys. And they're like, it was a fucking pleasure. It's <laughs> <was> like, well, <laughs> thank you very much. Was that so, Tom King, Tim Seeley? You bet it was. <laughs> good job. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it was it was really cool. I had a I had a really good time. So it was it was a surprisingly awesome and you know I'm not I'm not going to say chill, but more casual and, and fun than I kind of expected it to be. Yeah, I mean you know I'd go back again. We've been four times, but I would probably take a year off. It seems like going back to back has some diminishing returns because the same shows and the same people are there. Whereas if you spread them out a little bit, you get to see some different stuff. I think next time I would just avoid the floor altogether. Like I didn't buy anything that I couldn't have bought online. And the shit show that that floor is becoming is just like not worth it to me anymore. But apart from that, that one aspect of it, everything else is great. And doing it as press is really fun. So, yeah, I mean, the only thing I bought that couldn't be bought online was like stuff that was released like a month. It would be like a month later or two months later. Like I got the most recent hip hop family tree and I got that terror assaulter book. Those are books that aren't, you know, out yet or they're slowly trickling out. Um, so like there, there's a few advanced releases that Fanagraphics puts out, but for the rest, not really. It's just junk that you yeah. handed. Every time I walked in the DC booth, I was handed something. It's crazy. Like, here's a mask. Here's a guitar pick. Here's a I poster. I had a lot of swag. Yeah. <laughs> here's a comic book. I mean, it was just every time I walked in, something happened. Uh, I, I I probably would take next year off, too, because, you know, uh, the second year we went as general attendees, it was lessened. The second year we went as press, it was a little less exciting, too. So. Well, and it's just funny. If it was free, I mean, I'd go every year. But financially, it means this is your vacation. And yeah, so. Expensive. It's tough to do it over and over. Yeah, no doubt. Cal, would you go? Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, it's it's a uh, it sounds interesting. It seems like it's changing a little bit from kind of what we've come to expect. Um, I read that there were fewer movie studios there than really in the last five or six years at all. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Things like that. But I mean, it still sounds interesting, and knowing how much good comic stuff there is makes it more tempting especially uh because as you as you pointed out harper you never hear about that no not at all well that speaks to how badly the show's covered to me i mean that means that like comics journalism isn't doing its job because all they're doing is covering the movie stuff Mm -hmm. and they're not covering like the interesting panels that harper or you and i attended Mm -hmm. that weren't about you know Batman versus Superman or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something. You know? Well, that's all what we covered. I know. So. <laughs> I'm talking about the, going to like the panels. That uh, yeah, to, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Nobody covered the fact that Mark Russell did God is Disappointed in You in like 15 minutes mm-hmm. on a slideshow presentation. Nobody covered that. Hell, mm-hmm. we didn't cover that. 
No. Um, I mean, some, a lot of it's also just you had to be there. Like, it's yeah. fun to see this stuff. It's a little yeah. less exciting to read about some of this stuff. True. So. True. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, which is why that Grant Morrison panel, we combined it into a video because you need to see the video exactly. and the audio at the same time, sort of get some sort of sense of what that panel was even about. Yeah. But I, I do think that there could probably be some better coverage of that show. So, hey, Cal. We'll see if maybe we can send you next she year. She can represent. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was San Diego Comic Con. It was a good time. I had by all. And uh, we'll uh, we'll see what the rest of the year brings. And maybe 2016 will be an even bigger comic show. In our second part of our discussion, uh, the other big piece of interest to our listenership is the fact that Ant-Man, Marvel's most recent and I guess you could say smallest debut hero, uh, has uh, debuted at the box office this past weekend and – you know, it did pretty well, I guess, uh, as a film. I think it drew about $56.5 million in its opening weekend, which is a little smaller than I think most were expecting. I think it was kind of projected to give about 60 to 65. So, you know, we'll talk about whether or not that's a success or not. But just to give a little background for those of you who haven't heard my kvetching on this show about this uh, this film. Ant-Man is a project that I was very excited about, and I know Cal and Harper were when Edgar Wright was on board, its original director. After Edgar Wright had parted ways with Marvel due to a uh, number of creative differences that have not really ever been made public, there are some suppositions about what probably sent him away due to script rewrites uh, to sort of fit the Marvel mold, whatever it was. Um, He left, and when he left, I can't speak for anybody else in this crowd, but it certainly ended my interest in it. And uh, to be honest with you, I just had no had no intention of ever seeing it, um, and I didn't. So I still haven't seen it. I don't. I don't plan on seeing it. I won't call it a boycott, but let's be honest, I'm boycotting the film. End of podcast. Great <laughs> right. session, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, uh, I I have not seen it. I won't see it. I'll probably maybe see it on Netflix. Maybe. But I do know that Harper and Cal saw it. And uh, I think you guys may have both seen it uh, Sunday or Monday night or something. I don't know. It seemed like you guys kind of were locked in sync there on when you <laughs> when you were catching it. So I guess my question is, what can you tell me about Peyton Reed's version of Ant-Man? Peyton Reed's Ant-Man is... Probably my third favorite Peyton Reed movie. What's your favorite one? <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite, it's hard to say. I mean, do you go with Bring It On or do you go with uh, Down With Love? I mean, I know they have such such fervent fan bases. Actually, I think Bring It On does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, it's got many sequels too, doesn't it? It does. I think uh, that was one of those big direct-to-video sequel machines of the early aughts. Yeah, yeah. I think Hannah's favorite Peyton Reed film is Down With Love, and I think a few of my friends feel the same way. So, really when, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, that's when he 
when he was lined up to direct the Fantastic Four, I mean, I think it was Down With Love that people sort of pointed to as, oh, yeah, that guy could make a great 60s set Fantastic Four movie. But uh, that never happened. And, uh, well, whatever. We're at where we're at with the uh, Fantastic Four. But Ant-Man. OK, so it's your third favorite. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was fine. There were some things that I really liked, a couple of which I was surprised to learn actually uh, originated with Reed. And uh, once people pointed, I I had initially thought they were rights moments, but once people pointed out that they knew for one way or another that they were Reed's inventions, it made a lot of sense looking back at Down With Love. So, I mean, there's some cool stuff in there, but it's hard to compete with the project in my head of who I think is the best film comedy director of the 21st century. So Edgar Wright, like, I mean, how do you compete with a project that you can't even criticize? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with your estimation of Edgar Wright. Uh, that's again, part of my unhappiness with, with the fact that this project still exists, but I don't know, Harper, do you feel differently? I mean, you saw it last night uh, and you told me to wish you luck. Did my <laughs> luck wishing uh, help you at all? I suppose it did a little. So, I mean, here, here's the way I was kind of looking at it. If, if you look at it from the perspective of like, okay, it could have been this Edgar Wright movie, then obviously it's got a million flaws that you can point out. And, and in all honesty, the whole movie, it comes across as just kind of, okay, you know, it's another, it's another Marvel movie. It's got some things that they did much better than other Marvel movies. And I think you can tell a lot of that is from the script. I think a lot of that is just came across from the original idea for the movie and that it's not, it's not necessarily the end of the world. Uh, nothing falls out of the sky. Um, but on the other side of things, it does fall into a lot of the same, uh, Marvel tropes in that, you know, Hey, the villain is another guy who's exactly like the hero with an extremely similar suit who's just evil for some reason. And, uh, you know, those kind of things. But looking at it as just one of the Marvel movies and sort of divorcing it from the whole controversy and from what it maybe could have been, I actually think it's one of my it's pretty it's in my top three or four Marvel movies. I think it was it was fun. It's it's definitely one of the funnier of the Marvel movies. I mean, I haven't gone back and watched Guardians, so I know lots of people, uh, yourself included, Kyle, say that it's not remotely as funny the second time around, so I'm kind of scared to go back and watch it again. But I thought Ant-Man was actually fairly funny. Um, A lot of those moments, I feel... I'm curious to know, Cal, if any of these are the ones that uh, you said Reed came from Reed. Um, But the moments with Michael Pena, uh, when he's explaining kind of how he got the tip for these this heist is like totally ridiculous and it feels very Edgar Wright. That, that that was the only part of the movie that felt very Edgar Wright. You get these this silly montage where he's talking about, you know, he heard this from this one person who heard it from somebody else who heard it from somebody else and as he's doing his narration like it's it's matching what the people are saying in the montage. It's really goofy and really funny and visually clever. But the rest of it is very just like, okay, you know, this is a Marvel action movie and, you know, these pieces fall into these places and it's fairly predictable and full of plot holes. But, you know, overall, it was it was fun. I had an okay time with it, but it's it's really hard to look at it and not think about what could have been. Yeah, the Pena sequences are the ones that I really, really uh, uh, singled out and was shocked to learn that they were Reed's invention. No way. Yeah, yeah. Must have been watching a lot of Hot Fuzz that day. <laughs> Actually, I mean, if you if you watch Down with Love, you can see where those come from. I think mm. 
those were the best parts. Those were really the only parts that I thought were funny at all. One of my big problems with the movie was, so it was kind of a comedy, but there wasn't very much funny in it. Like there just wasn't, there weren't very many things like there was, it wasn't madcap enough. There weren't enough one-liners. There wasn't enough, there weren't enough characters for uh, Paul Rudd's character, uh, Scott Lang to bounce off of especially since the two main foils for him, Hank Pym and Hope, uh, Hope Pym, were such sticks in the mud in a lot of ways. Yeah. On the other hand, there's really only two action scenes, one of which is very small, so it's not a super effective action movie. And, and the heist sequences are kind of rushed, I thought, so it's not yeah. a very effective heist movie. So. It did a lot of really interesting things and like structurally, I'd love to see more Marvel movies kind of take this more uh, serious approach to the genres that they're dealing with instead of turning everything into a sci-fi action movie. Mm -hmm. But I think they kind of half-assed everything a little bit. And Wright, who, and I I hate, this is the last time I will go back to this, but Wright tends to spend time with the characters and spend time with the conceit, building out, building it out. And I don't think that that Reed or Marvel in general has the kind of fleetness they need to push past all these different, this mesh of different genres and influences and turn it into something coherent. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you there. I, I mean, they're kind of trying to imitate that style and not they're not able to really necessarily pull it off. It's it's kind of a valiant attempt to try and do something a little different. And it is, you can tell it was meant to be more of a comedy, you know, with a heist built into it, but it's, it's just kind of, it's kind of shoved into the Marvel formula a little bit in, 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 until it just became blander than it probably could have been. Even, even not under right. It probably could have been better. Let me, let me ask this. Um, Cause this is of all the things that interest me the most about the film, uh, despite its sort of ramshackle production. It originally came from a script from Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish, and I guess they still get a story by credit based on uh, the credits that I've seen online. And it was rewritten by Adam McKay and Paul Rudd, and I know for a fact that there was a third set of writers, you know, the Marvel staff, <laughs> the faceless Marvel staff from their script writing program came in and did uh, a little bit of a touch-up job, probably behind McKay and Rudd. Uh, and then Peyton Reed, of course, you know, is, I always consider a director to sort of be the next level of screenwriter because they sort of imbue whatever the hell you know is on the page into reality, and they can change a number of things, including intent of uh, pieces of dialogue and the like, if if they so choose. So there's been a lot of hands in this story. You guys kind of alluded to it, but do the seams show? I mean, can you can you really tell? where, uh, you know, well, this is clearly not from Edgar Wright. This is clearly an Adam McKay bit. This is something that Peyton Reed might have done. I mean, is that is that a regular thing, or is it just like, do, do they are they able to hide a lot of those uh, varying influences? I don't know that I necessarily was able to tell. There were definitely bits that were, I mean, bits that stood out as like the more comedy bits as, as opposed to like the more kind of Marvel style stuff. But otherwise, I don't, really felt like I could feel it like shifting from one person. Not, not like if you read a comic and it's got different artists from page to page that are somewhat similar, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You really can't tell. And I think that the more people look for it, the more it hurts the movie. 
I mean, ultimately, no matter what Wright contributed in the script and Cornish contributed in the script, as, as you said, Kyle, it comes down to Reed. I mean, it come, well, it comes down to Reed and given Marvel's style, the Marvel execs, Kevin Feige. That, I think, is the most productive way to watch it. I don't think the seams can show. And I, I, I mean, as I said, when I tried to guess who wrote what, I was wrong most of the time. The the two big things, the Michael Pena flashbacks and the uh, the briefcase fight, mm-hmm. I was sure were right. And both of them were Reed's invention. Huh. So I think that it's as full a movie and uh, as fully Peyton Reed's movie as any of the Marvel movies belong to their directors. Okay. I'm going to ask a question different for both of you because... Harper, you kind of fall on the positive side of it. Cal, you fall more on the meh side. I won't say negative, but it sounds like fine is sort of eh. So, Cal, what works best about the movie? Well, in addition to what we've already talked about, I will say I really liked, as I mentioned, the structure, uh, the uh, replacing two of the standard issue Marvel fights with heists. I think that was a good idea. It broke up the monotony of a lot of the Marvel movies. And I also think that the final fight worked really, really well. Uh, it might be my favorite of the like Marvel climactic battles. They did some cool things playing around with size, uh, with size and scale. Most of my favorite jokes from the movie come from that fight, uh, like visual gags. And... The entire fight is confined to a single bedroom. Like there's no world, you know, at no point is this, you know, are are the stakes, you know, world destruction. It's two people in one room duking it out. And they managed to keep that fresh and inventive and just really, really entertaining in a way that the movie was kind of struggling with before that, I think. Who's fighting in the final fight? Is it Darren Cross, Yellow Jacket, and then Scott Lang? Is that yeah, is that what's set up? It, it, it's Ant Man and Yellow Jacket. Uh, I guess spoilers for those of you who are still listening and haven't seen it. It's Ant Man and Yellow Jacket in uh, Ant Man's daughter's bedroom, uh, like his six year old daughter. And uh, a lot of the fight brings in like the toys and stuffed animals and stuff like that that are in the bedroom as. Uh, uh, impromptu gigantic weapons for their miniature fight. So the, all the stuff with like the train and the, uh, in the trailers and stuff, that's probably from that final fight then is it, that what you're saying? Yeah, that, that is from that final fight. And, uh, they actually build on the train gag in some really entertaining ways too. I was worried that they were giving away their best joke, but they actually kept going with the train gag in a way that I liked. And then the, the last thing was, um, One of the very, very final scenes was Scott and his ex-wife and her new husband and kind of their all all their shared daughter uh, having dinner together. And it was just a really sweet scene. It was probably uh, some of the sharpest writing in the uh, in the movie, especially when you like in a kind of emotional context. And it really sold the characters, especially the side characters, like the perennially wasted uh, Judy Greer and her new husband, in a way that very, very little of the rest of the movie did. That's And that's Bobby Cannavale's character, right? Yes. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big fan of both Judy Greer and Bobby Cannavale. So it breaks my heart to hear that they're wasted <laughs> in any movie because uh, they might be the most talented people in the entire movie, <laughs> particularly Judy Greer. So, Harper, let me shift over to you then. Since you really like the movie and I, that, you know, that's that interests me to hear. I think you rank it like third or whatever in your uh, Marvel rankings. What didn't work about the film for you? I've got two two definite things. The first is the villain, I think, is really, yeah, sure. really, really dull. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, just the fact, I mean, it's Iron Man and Iron Man 2 and Iron Man 3 and every, you know, it's a, a third or a half of the Marvel movies have the villain being just somebody who has the exact same power set or the exact same suit and uh, somehow is just as skilled and is, uh, but is crazy. Uh, which makes them dangerous. Um, and it was it's the industrialist bad guy. Yeah. You know? And it was, it was really, really poorly defined too. I mean, basically he's got the same idea and he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy up until he just, you know, starts killing people for some reason. They explain it away with like, Oh, well, unless he has this specific Ant-Man helmet, then, you know, shrinking down makes you go crazy over time. <laughs> Is that really the motivation? Yeah. But then they, they uh, I mean, there's more to it than that too, that he was like the thwarted, he, he wanted, he was like the protege of Hank Pym, but Pym didn't want the technology to get out and he was felt like that was a betrayal, but mostly it's because he went crazy. Um, yeah. And, and they make hints that kind of the same thing happened to happened to Hank a little bit. Like that's why he can't wear the suit anymore. But then it's like, uh, well, you just said your helmet like protects you from that. Right. I don't know. There were there are a lot of holes in that, and the villain was just super dull and and you know not not exciting at all from that perspective. Which is a shame because they could have done something really interesting uh, with that power set. What was he played well at least? I mean, um... uh, he's okay, but it's it's just kind of it's it's a little too over the top villainy. Was, I didn't think there was a whole lot of subtlety to it. Yeah, not really. No, and then the the other thing to me is they make this big uh, this this is major spoilers uh, for anybody listening who doesn't want to hear, but um, kind of one of the big parts in the climax is that the way that Wasp died, the original Wasp, or died or disappeared or, or went missing, is she went quote unquote subatomic, so she went so small that that time meant nothing and she could never come back and they could never find her. Which, on a side note, hopefully means that, you know, the original Wasp may be able to come back in some way, uh, which would be kind of interesting. But so they make this big deal that, okay, the big courageous move that uh, Scott Lang is going to make is he's going to go subatomic to save his daughter. Like, that's the only way he can stop Yellow Jacket is to go subatomic to get into his suit. So he does that, and then he's stuck in there. And then, so you know, I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is going to be really neat. Like, he's going into this crazy quantum realm, which that visually was okay. It was kind of neat. It's like, okay, well, how are they going to there's going to be something really clever. Like they're going to play on something early in the movie. That's going to get him out of this, out of this uh, impossible puzzle, you know, that wasp could never make out of, you know, somebody who half invented these suits, co-invented the suits could not get out of this mystery, but no, he just like pulls out one of the growth, uh, the little discs that he could throw at things to make them grow and puts it in his belt. And like, Oh, okay. Oh, that's not, that's a big a deal. (laughs) 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 They totally throw that moment away. I was expecting something so much more interesting. And then it's just like, Oh well, this was not really very dangerous at all. Like this is no big deal. So that that was a really a huge wasted opportunity. I was excited about it, and then it totally was such a bummer to see how he got out of it. So 
but I agree with a lot of the stuff Cal mentioned too. I think that final battle was really fun. And, and that last scene too, I, I didn't, I had totally kind of forgotten about that, but I'm really glad you brought that up. The dinner table scene was really great. And it was nice to see a stepdad role where he's not just the evil stepdad, especially being, uh, it was a really interesting kind of dynamic with this uh, stepdad being a cop versus Scott Lang, the, the biological father criminal was interesting and played in a way that I definitely did not expect, which was, was kind of cool. So the way you describe that third act, Harper, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is unintentional, but it almost sounds like interstellar, you know, a oh, father trying to save his daughter and make up this like puzzle kind of realm. Um, it, it just, just in like very surface details, but maybe, maybe it's more than that. No, I, I definitely thought about that. <laughs> it's not, not remotely as clever. <laughs> you know, we, did, we didn't see Matthew McConaughey just pop in a, a, a growth pellet into his belt to get out of that one. <laughs> um, let me ask a question about the two leads then. I mean, since, since it sounds like Darren Cross was a total uh, waste, uh, I'd like to talk about the other three main performers. Um, but first, let me, let me concentrate on our Ant-Men first. How is Paul Rudd probably the thing that I was most excited about uh, beyond uh, the original director's involvement was the casting of Paul Rudd, who I just thought was a fantastic choice for an action movie lead. Uh, so atypical, so talented, so funny. Um, I love him in almost everything he's in, even really shitty Halloween movies. Um, is he a good Scott Lang? I think he's pretty good. He's. I think he brings a lot of humor to it that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Um, that's not just straight out from the script, uh, just in the, his personality and the kind of the way he plays stuff. I think a lot of the jokes would have felt fell flat and kind of, you know, felt like kind of the typical Marvel movie humor, like, uh, you know, that you just kind of smirk at or whatever if it wasn't for him. So I think his performance added a lot to that. And, and he had a surprising amount of kind of pathos too in regards to kind of dealing with his daughter you know, which is such a more much more interesting motivator than uh than most marvel movies deal with so and he he dealt really well with that i thought yeah i liked rudd uh i mean he it, it's 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 not rudd's best role uh it's not gonna go down as one of his most memorable but i mean he brings Everything you like about Rudd, he brings to the role, and that, that fits Lang really well, I think. Rudd does a uh, charming, down-on-his-luck slacker very well. That is kind of what he's called to do here. So, yeah, he sells, he sells some stuff that could be very goofy with a uh, pretty effortless deadpan grin. He almost sounds like he would be too old for this role. I mean, he's about like like in his upper forties, right? I mean, I guess there are you know down on his luck slackers that are in their upper forties, but I don't know. That almost sounds like the role of like a thirty year old man or something, right? Well, I mean, he he was in jail for a while. I mean, basically, his arc is before the movie begins. He had a successful career. And then when he found out there was some um, shady stuff going on for the uh, corporation he worked for, he basically burgled them and set all of their kind of embarrassing secrets out to light and was arrested and went to jail for a number of years before getting out. So this is a guy who, I mean, in, in the movie, he's had a successful career, risen to some degree of prominence in it, then spent some time, then spent a few years in jail. So, I mean, I, 40s works for me. Got it. Got it. That actually makes more sense. 
That was kind of a nitpick I had a little bit too, is that from all they actually told about him, that sounds like the only crime he ever committed. <laughs> it sounded like he was a normal guy who then just happened to do the right, like play this kind of Robin Hood role. But suddenly he's like the master thief. Um, and, and, you know, he, oh, and he always turns back to crime at the earliest moment. And it's like, well, it didn't sound like he was a criminal. It just sounded like he just <laughs> hacked into the place he worked. It sounded like an office space sort of scenario. <laughs> Yeah, I, I read that as the time that we were seeing him in jail was not for the original crime. Ah, uh, okay. Like, he had been to jail a few times. Okay, maybe so. But, there, but I mean, that's that's just me fixing that little plot hole in my head. I don't know if there's any actual evidence to support it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see it again and see. Speaking of uh, plot uh, somersaults here... Uh, you know, one of the big changes to Marvel continuity is this older version of Hank Pym and this establishment of Hank Pym as being active in, I guess, shrinking technology in the 50s, which I guess is true to actual comics. But in terms of like like current Marvel canon, that's not the case. You know, Hank Pym is sort of his eternal 30s, 40s that he is, uh, you know, in the comics. And he's certainly not with Michael Douglas playing him. Did they did they, you know do anything with Hank Pym of interest? I mean, were the flashbacks with dealing with S.H.I.E.L.D., which I presume are still in the film with, like, Haley Atwell and stuff, did that make for a compelling character, or was it just sort of a stock mentor-type thing? I thought that was pretty interesting. I think it was a smart move to do that, actually, because it kind of it, it gives us a chance to not do a hero origin again, so that we've already kind of got that, okay, there was this established Ant-Man who may or may not have been a secret government operative that nobody knew about, you know, so it kind of avoided that origin story and let us do kind of a second generation story without having to really do the first generation story. I think it worked pretty well. I, I wish there had been more of it actually, because a lot of the stuff, the, the few bits that we did get to see were really kind of cool. It was like, uh, you get to see kind of, um, almost like Bigfoot, you know, photography, like people think they caught a glimpse of the Ant-Man, like fighting through an, an army or whatever. And, and we get to see them in the eighties, like, uh, taking down a, a nuclear warhead, um, shot by the USSR. Uh, so I mean that, that stuff was kind of interesting to kind of gave a history to the character kind of out of the gate without having to kind of go through the motions of an origin story, which worked really well for me. Yeah. Uh, Douglas, Douglas mostly worked old Hank Pym, uh, mostly worked. I think my biggest issue with him was that his arc for the entire movie was basically preventing his daughter from having an arc for the entire movie. Yeah. For no reason. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned, I, I just did like a brief review on Letterboxd, and I mentioned the amount of gymnastics that they spend having Hank give just completely nonsense reasons why Hope can't be, can't do this, even though she's clearly the most qualified, something the movie points out a good nine or ten times, added 20 just awful minutes to the movie. Like, it's just repeated scenes of hope saying like, this guy's really like this, this ex con you hired who you don't know at all is really incompetent with this. We've got to stop Darren before it's too late. Just give me the suit. And dad's like, no, 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 this guy's the one, this guy's the way. And it's, uh, it just didn't work at all. Their relationship should have been a huge dramatic focus 
but because Hope was such a non non character in the movie, it just didn't work at all. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That Hope was going to be my other question. You know how the. I mean, I assume she's not quite the stock love interest, but maybe she's not really anything much better than that, uh, based on what you're telling me here, Cal. I don't even know if I'd call it the stock love interest, because other than the final moments of the movie when she and when she and Scott kiss, they don't really have that much of a relationship beyond a few very basic beats. You know, it's it's not like Thor, where we got a lot of scenes of these two supposedly romantic leads interacting with one another. This is a as perfunctory as love interests get. And the rest of her arc is basically um, finding Nemo if Nemo just followed his dad's rules all the time and nothing bad ever happened to him. <laughs> like, his dad's, her dad's scared because uh, his wife died, died in the wasp suit, so he doesn't want his daughter to do it. And his daughter listens to him, and then in the mid credit sequence, he's like, oh, you know what? You can have a wasp suit. And I'm just like, well, that would have been rousing if you'd done that 45 minutes ago <laughs> instead of writing her out of the finale. Yeah. Ah, this seems like such a lost opportunity, man. I mean, this idea of having like, I don't know, maybe Darren beats the hell out of Scott and then all of a sudden, Jan, uh, excuse me, Hope pops up in this new wasp suit and you get like double the shrinking people and, you know, you get like this really cool, awesome female saves the day kind of moment, which Marvel's like never had that I can remember. I think that would be really, really great. Uh, have a strong woman character. That just sounds like that was completely just botched. Yeah, the, the the one the one little nod to to the fact that maybe maybe they felt somebody felt that way too is when uh, when he decides to finally give her the suit, she's about damn time. Just <laughs> <This is> like, <laughs> that, yeah, no that, shit. That could have been such a fist pump <clears throat> moment if it yeah. had happened at a time when that would affect the plot. But I mean, they've already said Hope isn't going to be in Civil War. Kevin Feige said, you know, he didn't want to rush introducing her. He wanted to give her time to breathe. But we know all the Phase 3 movies up through 2019, so I'm curious as to when that time to breathe is going to be. Uh, I mean, maybe Infinity War, but that's even a long time away, man. <laughs> I, and there's a lot of people gonna, that are going to be in that movie, we presume, so I'm not sure how that would even work. Yeah, wow. That sucks to hear. Okay, so let's let's just let's just break this down then in terms of grades. Uh, I'm just kind of curious. Harper, I mean, you say this is like your third or fourth favorite. I mean, what grade would you give this? I can't rank these these fucking Marvel movies anymore, man. One more time, Kyle. <laughs> no, fuck this. I'm, I never want to do it again. It's over. It's over. Um, but what grade would you give it, Harper? Uh I'd probably go B minus or so. Okay. Cal, how about you? Yeah, I think B- minus is pretty accurate. I mean, I've been trying to think of um, the grades, and I think I, I would settle like 2.5 to 3 stars out of 5. Like, yeah, C+, plus B-. minus. It's polished. It's got some really inventive things, but it, it, it just didn't come together for me. All right. My last question relates to the future. So we know this movie... 
I don't want to say underperform, but I guess that really is kind of the word to use here. Uh, is it's slightly underperformed below expectations? I think that's the political statement to make. Do you think Ant Man, both as a piece of product and as a financial performer, looking at it in both angles, do you think it bodes well for Captain Marvel, Doctor Strange, and Black Panther, or bodes ill? based on how little money it made, based uh, on expectations. I would guess that it probably will not have very much impact on on the future of Marvel at all. Um, just from the fact that I think, A, I mean, this obviously was not one of the, one of the Marvel movies that brought in a lot of, a lot of money or a lot of new viewers necessarily, um, like Guardians did. But more importantly, I think the origin of the movie, having come out of, the origin being so different than every other Marvel movie. That's just a, 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 you know, stock piece to fit in this puzzle for the next bajillion years of Marvel movies. The fact that it did come out of an auteur who really wanted to do something interesting that kind of pushed it into being something a little different. So I think these other movies that didn't start that way are not, I don't think we're really going to see them be affected by this movie in that way. Yeah, I mean, if, if if Marvel can pull out of Iron Man 2 and The Incredible Hulk and, you know, things like that, like major missteps, then I I, I don't think that a, a light but charming movie will hurt them. If anything, it makes me a little hopeful for some of those other movies. Not for Captain Marvel. I think that the way Hope was treated in this has just made me fairly seriously cynical about Marvel's treatment of their female characters. But the fact that for the first two thirds of this movie, they, they were willing to go all in on a heist theme and not really have any action at all does give me a little bit of hope for something like Dr. Strange, which to be frank, I don't think works as an action movie on any level. Uh, so uh, I think the flexibility of it, I mean, maybe that all came from right and Marvel will never do that again uh, to this level. I mean, they've always played around with genre, but this took it to a different level. But if this is indicative of a new trend for them, then it does make me hopeful for for them creatively. I mean, financially, people didn't seem that excited about it. Marvel wasn't even at SDCC this year. And... I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if the lack of excitement for both this and Age of Ultron signals the beginning of the end for them. I mean, maybe it's just a bad year, but I'll, I'll be curious to see how next year works out for them. Yeah, that, that's been my question the whole time. I mean, Age of Ultron was a financial success, but it certainly was not necessarily a critical one. I mean, it had a solid Rotten Tomatoes score in the 70s, which is better than many superhero movies, but it wasn't like the blow away great 94% or whatever the hell the first Avengers was, plus that billion and a half dollars that it grossed. I mean, that's that that I mean it when it, it it performed below its its pre- predecessor. So that was a problem. Ant-Man, you know, there's a lot of audience apathy there for whatever reason. I don't know if it was Marvel marketing, which I think it probably was. So 2015 definitely has been a step back from 2014, which was like a banner year. I don't know. I just wonder if that means Marvel should adjust their expectations for these solo characters. If audiences can't show up for Ant-Man, 
Are we sure they're going to show up for Doctor Strange? I mean, it that just doesn't seem likely to me, but at least not in any large number. But maybe we should stop, you know, guessing that everything is going to be like Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I mean, Guardians, I think, was just such an anomaly. Um, but, I mean, then again, it Winter Soldier overperformed too that year. So, I mean, as you say, 2014 was just an amazing year for them and a benchmark that they can't expect to hit every year. Although uh, a film critic I follow on Twitter had an interesting point about Age of Ultron, which is he argued that that's the movie, he liked the movie a lot, but that's the movie that's going to kill the Marvel Cinematic Universe because uh, there were no consequences to anything that happened. The entire movie was basically building up in his mind to the death of Tony Stark uh, for everything that he did, for all the hubris and all this. But they have Robert Downey on contract and they have Civil War up. So instead of killing him, everything just works out. And that's the kind of thing that deflates interest a lot. People feeling like these don't matter when Marvel is selling them on how much they matter to one another. Yeah. I mean, it was the opportunity to create like a dark chapter, kind of like the Empire Strikes Back, I guess, version of uh you know, the story arc where, you know, that middle chapter ends darkly. Not, you know, of course, not every movie can be The Empire Strikes Back, of course. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's there, there's definitely, like, a bit of wasted opportunity. And I think when we talked about Age of Ultron, uh, that was one of the things Hannah brought up particularly was that Tony didn't seem to pay for his crimes necessarily. So, yeah, I guess that there, there, there's an audience that could be potentially a little, a little burned from that. I just – I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, I guess, going forward. There's just a lot of sort of unknowns. I mean Black Panther gets introduced in Civil War. Perhaps he becomes a break, a break, one of the hits of that film, and then his own film is a huge hit. Uh, who knows if Carol Danvers will show up before her own movie somewhere. I have to assume she'll probably show up in Infinity War. But Doctor Strange, uh, I, I get the feeling if there's a movie that's going to not do so well, it's going to be that one. And that's too bad because that's actually a character I think that has a lot of potential to be very fascinating. But I'm not sure they've necessarily put the team together to make it that fascinating other than Chiwetel Ejiofor and Tilda Swinton. So, you know, whatever. Who knows? Anyway, Ant-Man uh, is playing in theaters now. You go see it because I sure as shit ain't. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe I'll catch it on Netflix one day and I can return in a year and tell you guys what I thought about Ant-Man. It's a date. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> keep, keep your eyes on uh, July 21st, 2016, when I have really thoughtful things to say about Peyton Reed's Ant-Man. 